You are listening to The Stimulus Podcast. Hello, my friends. How you doing? I hope you're well. For those of you new to the show, my name is Rob Orman. I spent 20 years as an emergency physician and I'm now a physician coach. My mission is to help docs get unstuck, unburnt, and kick ass in their careers and lives to flourish. And this is my pod where we talk about the ways to do that. So welcome. I'm glad you came. Now, you know what it feels like when your mind is focused, paying attention, just as you know what it's like when your mind is wandering. It turns out that these activities are controlled by distinct yet interconnected networks in the brain, the default mode network and the task positive network. And the way that they operate is when one is turned on, the other is at rest. And this seesaw, this push and pull between the default mode network and the task positive network is vital for their function as well as your function. And today I want to get into how these two operate, how they interact and how to use that knowledge for your benefit, because understanding them, I think can be a real game changer. More on that in a moment. But first, your job is hard. You got to know a lot of stuff. You got to be able to figure out a lot of things in a short period of time. And the job is also hard on you. And there's an entire aspect of training that doesn't address this. Things like navigating difficult conversations, creating the mindset you want, staying cool under pressure, regulating your nervous system, effectively dealing with stress. And for that matter, dealing with that inner perfectionist that can seem like such a pain in the butt. And that is just the tip of the iceberg of what we are covering at Awake and Aware. In person, Bend, Oregon, May 1st through 3rd this year, 2024. Awake and Aware is a CME event because that is an important thing to know. So join me, Ryan Cheney, Scott Weingart, and a cadre of physician coaches in person. Bend, Oregon, May 1st through 3rd. There's a link to the Awaken Aware website where you can take a look at the curriculum, who all the speakers are, all the good stuff in the show notes for this pod. And I'll finish with this. There is a better way. It doesn't have to be the same crap day after day. So we'll see you there at Awaken Aware. And I realized that rhymed. It wasn't intentional, but I'm keeping it in because it was kind of cool. <laughs> Let's start this off with the default mode network. That's the one that most people are familiar with if they're you know, familiar with either of these. And periodically, I'll abbreviate this as the DMN for the sake of brevity. So default mode network is a group of interacting brain regions. It's not just one part of the brain. It's a network. It's just all parts. It's kind of like a bunch of suburbs connected by highways. So it's interconnected brain regions that become particularly active when we're not focusing on the outside world. It's our inner world. It's involved in brain chatter or inner voice. Now, this is far from a bad thing. I mean, we need the default mode network for healthy brain function. And this internal monologue or stream of consciousness is a fundamental aspect of our cognition. It involves thoughts and memories and self-referential processing. You can think of it as your brain's autopilot mode. 
It's engaged during rest, it's engaged during mind wandering, introspection, daydreaming, memory formation, understanding ourselves, predicting future events, and integrating what's happening in the world around us. And the self-referential thought and the mind wandering that happen with the default mode network can be both a blessing and a curse. On the one hand, those things are linked to creativity. On the other, self-referential thought and mind wandering can become like an elephant stampede and get out of control and lead to rumination. Now we all have rumination on things, but that can really escalate in mood disorders. And the brain has another key player that I mentioned in the beginning, the task positive network, the TPN. The TPN comes online when we're actively engaged in tasks, especially those that require attention, cognitive control, goal-directed behavior, executive functioning. This network, the TPN, it's kind of like our brain's mission control center when we're task-focused. So when you are performing a procedure, when you are analyzing results, when you are building a differential diagnosis or even working on a chart, when you're concentrating, shining that intense spotlight of your attention, the task positive network is turned on. And where it starts to get really interesting, I mean, that, that is all pretty interesting, but even more so, the default mode network and the task positive network operate in opposition. You can think of them like a seesaw or for my nerdy tribe, shout out to the nerdy tribe, a dynamic equilibrium, which when I heard that term in high school science class, I knew that I had found my home. So when one is active, the other is usually quiet. And the balance between these two is vital. You have too much default mode network activity. You might find yourselves lost in thought when you need to focus too much task positive network activation over prolonged periods without adequate rest or downtime, well, that can lead to mental fatigue and stress and burnout. And when the brain doesn't get a chance to disengage from task focused activities, it misses a vital opportunity to perform essential restorative functions because the default mode network, which is more active in non-focused rest periods, plays a role in memory consolidation, self-reflection, emotional processing. And when there's continuous engagement of the task positive network at the expense of the default mode network, all of those processes can be disrupted. And did you know, I didn't know this until I went down the rabbit hole, the default mode network is not just a human phenomenon. Other mammals, primates, well, you think, okay, uh, primates, I get two rodents have DMN-like networks. So save that one for your next cocktail party and just pull it out of your back pocket with a royal flourish. And just personally, if I'm trying to do creative work or think of something novel and I'm just focused on that thing where I need to just pull something out of the air, which has never been thought of before, find it sometimes really hard if I'm focusing on it. But if I'm out on a bike ride and just kind of thinking about nothing, those thoughts just rain down like a hailstorm because when the default mode network is active and there's the mind wandering, the daydreaming, that is also linked to creativity. And it's hard to be creative when you're trying to be creative. And what happens 
when the default mode network falls out of balance or runs a little askew? Well, let's take a look at depression. The default mode network often shows heightened activity, particularly in the network's areas that are involved in self-referential processing and rumination. And the hyperactivity of those areas is thought to contribute to the persistent negative thoughts and excessive self-focus characteristic of depression. And as I go through this pod episode, none of this is all or none. That default mode network is the only thing that does this or the task positive network is the only thing that does that. But we're speaking in generalities because there's many other brain networks that contribute to this, but these are generally the main players in the things that I'm going to be talking about. So we're just talking about depression. The flip side of the coin, the default mode network in those with anxiety disorder can show disrupted connectivity patterns, potentially leading to excessive worry and anticipatory anxiety. The chatter and schizophrenia is linked with dysfunctional default mode network activity. What happens there, what sometimes happens there is there's a failure for the DMN to deactivate during an external task focused activity. So when one is interacting with the world, the task positive network is on, the default mode network has not turned off. And it's believed that that contributes to hallucinations and delusions. And when the connections are really out of sorts, this default mode network, yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of daydreaming and creativity, but it's also involved in social connection, thinking about others. When it's really out of sorts, you can find psychopathy or psychopaths and antisocial behavior. A 2012 study looked at this and indeed found differences in those with psychopathy in their brain networks, including the default mode network, in areas associated with moral judgment potentially contributing to the antisocial behavior. So that's when things are not running smoothly in the default mode network. And let's shift back between the balance between the default mode and task positive networks, the push and pull between the two. When one is active, the other's quiet. And this can be used strategically. So a few moments ago, we learned that increased activity of the default mode network can be seen in states of anxiety or rumination. And taking a small step of deliberate action, which activates the task positive network, shifts the brain's focus from internal ruminative processes to external goal-directed tasks that can reduce symptoms of anxiety and enhance cognitive control. Now, it's not a panacea, but that is one of the things that is happening in the brain and why when we talk about catastrophizing or ruminating on what might happen and getting spun up, shifting that to, all right, so what? What's next? Identifying that next action and then doing it. And you know that when you're worried and worried and worried, your cognitive performance is less, your attention is less, your problem solving, your memory, all of those things are negatively impacted. So shifting from rumination and catastrophization to action has been shown to improve all of those things. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, when's he going to talk about insomnia? I mean, come on, that's got to be involved here. But you might not be thinking about that, but you're about to get it. Because anyone with insomnia 
has experienced racing mind or rumination or unwanted thinky time. I mean, the, the brain is just a going and a going. It's a accelerator on this unwanted thinking is stuck. So is that our default mode network just not turning off? It's a great question, my friends. And the answer is sort of, it sort of is. It's complicated, but the default mode network is definitely involved. And a study came out just a few months ago looking at this. And it's the Kilgore study, if you're looking for it in the show notes. And the authors found a significant correlation between an overactive default mode network and poor sleep quality. Specifically, increased connectivity within the default mode network was predictive of subsequent sleep disturbances. And this study supports the idea that an overactive DMN contributes to insomnia by potentially interfering with the brain's ability to transition smoothly into sleep, possibly due to persistent self-referential thoughts and an ability to switch off mind-wandering. There is a lack of DMN deactivation. And as I was reading the studies on this, I thought, wait a second, is this why counting sheep works? Because it's a task-focused activity and will help you fall asleep? Well, it turns out that this has been studied and a 2022 article said, well, counting sheep doesn't help you fall asleep. Oh, shot down. Okay. But mental focus can be important in helping you fall asleep. Here, let me, let me quote from the write-up on this. The, I cannot find the complete article, but here is, here is from the summary. So it says, counting sheep is a useless way of dropping off to sleep. Instead, you should have been dreaming up a mental image of somewhere relaxing, such as a waterfall or a holiday. Sleep researchers at Oxford University found that among a group of 50 people with insomnia, those who were told to think of relaxing images fell asleep more than 20 minutes before they normally did. Those who tried distraction techniques, such as counting sheep, fell asleep even later than normal. Oh my gosh, the counting sheep, not, not only don't they help, they make things worse. And in an interview with the lead author of the study, she said, and th this has to do with trying to suppress, trying to just sh by force of will shut off all that thinking. She said, quote, people have been advised for many years to try to put their worries out of their heads to relax and get to sleep. Those who try to suppress their worries take longer to fall asleep than those who let them run their course. Now it's picturing of a pleasant scene. Yes, it is focusing on something, but it surely involves many other areas of the brain. On one level, it's a stretch, saying that, that this is an example of the push-pull seesaw of task-positive network activation and default mode network deactivation, because there's just so many other things at play. But it, interesting nonetheless. So let's get into a related area where we know a lot about the interplay between the task-positive network and default mode network mindfulness. Here we are talking about a network of the brain whose currency is random thought, self-generated thought, inner dialogue, creation of narrative, the default mode network. And I'm wondering, in meditation, mindfulness meditation specifically, where a core part of the practice is to notice stimulus-independent thoughts as they pop up and then come back to the breath or 
meditation object, whatever that is. Using an anchor of concentration to repeatedly notice and release ourselves from the grip of thought, to notice thought as thought. And I wondered, is what we're noticing and coming back from, or you might say waking up from, is that thing, the activity and machinations of the default mode network? It very well may be. And functional MRI has shed some light on this. And a 2011 study looking at brain activity from experienced meditators found reduced activity in the default mode network, particularly in regions associated with mind wandering and self-referential thoughts, which makes sense. The more cumulative time a meditation practice, the chances are the stronger the ability to focus on the meditation object. Not that there's not a wandering mind, but it's more likely that there's going to be less wandering mind. So this gives some signal that the default mode network is somehow at play in meditation. And building on that, another fMRI study the following year found that mindfulness training increases awareness of the shift in attention, allowing individuals to recognize when their mind is wandering, a hallmark of default mode network activity. And I think that this is where the fascinating dial gets turned up to 11 because the interplay of the default mode network and the task positive network is partly what's happening in mindfulness meditation. If you deconstruct mindfulness from a research scientist's perspective, there's four cognitive elements. There's mind wandering, awareness of mind wandering, shifting of attention, and sustained attention. And I'll add to that, Put it on rinse and repeat because you go back then to mind wandering, awareness of mind wandering, shifting of attention, sustained attention, and back and back. And there you got yourself a meditation session. It's a continuous fluctuation between mind wandering and focused attention. And mindfulness, as they say, is like kettlebells for the brain. It helps build focus, helps build attention, partly through strengthening of sustained focus, but also heightening awareness of the wandering mind. And where does wandering mind happen? Yes, default mode network. But it's not just awareness, focusing, and refocusing at play. A study out of Korea found that mindfulness practice can improve the coordination and communication between different regions of the default mode network, which may enhance cognitive and emotional processing, an effect that they found persists after the meditation session is done. But wait, there's more. <laughs> because back in the beginning, we we're talking about rumination, talking about anxiety, or even just talking about thoughts that pop up, but then get big and then they can envelop or fuse with you. There was a 2007 fMRI study out of Canada that found that mindfulness practice can shift self-referential thoughts towards a more detached, and judgmental perspective. And this is part of the practice of identifying a thought as just a thought. It's not you, but it takes effort to build that cognitive distancing. And to the point of distancing, or I take, I would take it another step, not just distancing, but accepting, accepting that that thought has arisen and accepting that that thought is just a thought and that this moment is just as it is. The moment can't be otherwise. That cognitive stance is enhanced by mindfulness activity because with practice, and this is supported by a 2022 study in the journal Nature, found that with mindfulness training, 
the resting state of DMN connectivity is impacted, which can improve the disruptive aspect of repetitive negative thinking. Now, I want to shift this as we're going to stay on mindfulness, but I want to shift this to the task positive network. And this is something that you listening to this right now are heavily reliant on. And it's not, I mean, it's not just an arrow in your quiver. It's not even the bow. It's really, it's you pulling the bow and shooting the arrow. It is your focus, holding that focus and then carrying out that task. It fatigues. Imagine shooting an arrow a hundred thousand times a day. So how do we nurture the task positive network so it stays fresh? We stay fresh and balanced. And we were just talking about mindfulness, which is centered around a task positive focused activity, concentrating on your meditation object and then noticing the mind wandering, then coming back to this focus. And you think, boy, when doing this, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to tire out my task positive network even more. But Mindfulness is a really peculiar case because even though there is focused activity, it actually allows for a balance between the TPN and DMN. And it does this in two ways. First, it's a form of restful awareness where you're not actively engaging in problem solving or decision making. It also encourages a state of open monitoring where you're aware of your thoughts and feelings without actively engaging with them. And that can stimulate the DMN in a balanced way, promoting creativity, problem solving, and a sense of well-being. And the paradox lies in how we rest our brains. So imagine, we're going to talk about taking breaks in a moment, but if you take a break, and you check social media. That actually does not help you. That, in fact, continues to activate the task-positive network. There is not genuine rest. But mindfulness, while seemingly an active process, promotes balanced activation of the TPN and DMN, which does lead to effective rest and, you could say, task-positive network rejuvenation. Hey friends, if you haven't already, check out the free resources that we have at roborman.com. These were all made to address specific pain points in medical practice. Scripting your least favorite conversations, my four favorite documentation templates, the quick and dirty guide to calling consults, and the driveway debrief. You can find them all under the freebies tab on the website, or you can click the link in the show notes to get right to them. All right, back to the show. So let's get into taking breaks. When you are at work, and I know that the audience for this show works in a wide range of environments, some in clinics, some in hospitals, some in emergency departments, some in the air, some not in medicine at all, but chances are you are just continually task saturated, focusing on decisions, you get decision fatigue, there's just so much going on, yet, yet, you do not have time to drink, eat, or take breaks. But I would say that that's not true. If there's like a mass casualty event, yes, it's really hard to take a break. Otherwise, it's not impossible. When we believe that there's no time to do things like eat, drink, pee, and take an occasional break, it is self-imposed limitation. Do you have time to sew a laceration, to take a consultant call, to write a note, to do a patient intake? Yes, of course, you prioritize it. Taking a break is the same, but 
Breaks need to be planned in advance. And when you start doing a thing, okay, I'm going to focus on breaks. It, it needs to be the focus of your day. That's kind of the game of the day. If you don't take breaks at all, start with one. If you take one, do two. And putting some structure around it, like setting an alarm or using a consistent event in the day to trigger it can make it more likely to happen. And actually, one of our first ever episodes, this is with Josh Russell, was on the master skill of taking breaks. Let me summarize some of that, as well as some of the research on why this is so important and some ways to do it. So when you work in an environment where there's a paucity of natural break opportunities, or even more so, I'd say this may even be more of the issue. There's an ethos and cultural expectation that you should just power through. You need to make a habit of ensuring that breaks happen. Because when you take an effective break, work tends to be more fun. You're more efficient. And you often feel like you've taken better care of patients. And while some might think that it's a sign of weakness to take a break, the truth is it's really a sign of maturity and an understanding of our limitations as human beings. Our, our bodies and brains, they can only give so much. You know that mental vigilance naturally wanes and decision fatigue heavily sets in as the day progresses. Nobody functions with the same efficiency throughout the day. There are so many studies on this that it could be, it can in fact be an entire just podcast on its own with a thousand episodes. Well, maybe a hundred. So let me talk about two that I just love. I don't love them because of what they reveal, but I love them because they do reveal it. There was a 2014 study in JAMA. This is of primary care clinics. And they found that the rate of antibiotic prescribing was significantly higher among clinicians at the end of the workday. And that's presumably due to decision fatigue and efficiency compromise that happens as our mental energy wanes. And I think, and this is my favorite one. It's not favorite because this is a good thing and there's actually some sadness associated with it, but this has to do with judges. They studied judges who were taking requests from prisoners. This is a 2010 study and they looked at how the judges ruled on cases and they found that favorable rulings dropped gradually from around 65% to nearly zero within each decision session. And here comes the mic drop. Favorable rulings, meaning they ruled in the prisoner's favor or granted the request, returned abruptly to 65% after a break. Quoting from the study, the likelihood of a favorable ruling is greater at the very beginning of the workday or after a food break. These are the same judges, and it's not like the cases were given to them in any particular order. These are just random cases. And study after studies on colonoscopy, studies on surgery, studies on this study, they all show the same thing. So what does a healthy break look like? I'm going to get back into this task positive network, default mode network idea. Don't engage with your phone. During your break, your mind should be in an unfocused state, in a default mode network state, because this allows a recharge of your focus capacity so that when you get back to work, you can truly focus better and kind of and feel better about it. Listening to naturalistic sounds can also activate the default mode network, not to mention parasympathetic activity in the brain. So if you live in a city where it's just sirens and car horns, 
I know as I said, don't engage with your phone. Just put in some earbuds and listen to sounds of nature. And to that point, if you can get outside, get outside because the location of your break matters. Whenever possible, get out of the care environment. The most regenerative location, and this is hard. I mean, most hospitals are not in places where this is easily accessible, but the most regenerative location usually involves nature. If you can't go outside, find a window to look out. What about social interaction? This is a really hard one because social interaction can be beneficial, but you need to consciously avoid work discussions because when you get back into that work discussion and you can feel it in your brain, it's just task positive network engaged. That's not what we want. Better, better just, you know, stand quietly and let it play. But if you're going to talk, don't talk about work. Don't talk about things which are going to require your executive functioning. Meditate and breathe. We talked about that a lot. Sitting quietly with your eyes closed and meditating for a few minutes can help to balance the TPN and the default mode network or a series of breath cycles. In for four, hold for seven, out for eight, repeat. And if it's possible, and if you're game, some brief physical activity. There was an interesting study out of China that showed significant deterioration in behavioral performance after performing continuous vigilant tasks but that cognitive performance was then improved with a short burst of moderate exercise. What exercise? So it's going to be moderate exercise, you know, some push-ups, some pull-ups, some jumping jacks, or like a short, brisk walk. You are beating your task-positive network into submission during a shift, taking a break, giving your brain glucose, allowing it to shift to non-focused thought, regenerative, restorative, it will help you in the short term. It will likely improve your patient care and will likely extend your career because feeling absolutely wasted at the end of a shift that, you know, I can't even make a decision. I can't even think adds up. There's a compounding effect of that versus, all right, I've taken some breaks. I'm tired, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling not so bad. There might be a very slight difference in those on any single day, but over days, weeks, months, or years, that is compounding interest. And as I was talking about before, finding the time to take a break, that takes intention. Anytime you start a new habit, it's important to make it achievable. So if you work in a busy clinic or an emergency department, the goal may be a micro break, which doesn't have to meaningfully affect the tasks that you have to do. This isn't your, your half an hour break where you're going to go up and you're going to make yourself some kind of beautiful latte and make a, make a heart or a tree in the milk foam. I do love when they do that at the coffee shop. And that's not what you're going to do. Just something short, short, a minute or two, taken every few hours. And by taking breaks, you can get that fresh start effect many times throughout your day. Think of those judges. 65% yes, went down to zero, and then they took a break and back to 65%. I, here I am, I'm a judicial genius, and I am fair, and I am listening, versus, man, I am hangry and tired, and I can't take another one of these. The motivation and vigor that you feel at the beginning of your day can happen repeatedly. And that is it for today. And you know what, if you love medicine, but you find the job itself, leaves a lot to be desired, 
I work with docs in your shoes who feel the same way and help them extend their careers and have fun doing it. Can you imagine driving to your next shift with a feeling of stoke and excitement? And then when you leave for the day, you think to yourself, hey, that was pretty damn great. We can help get you there. And you can reach out to me at roborman.com. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.